Hi guys, welcome to the Advanced Refrigeration Training Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Compass, along with my partner, Brett Wetzel. Today's episode is sponsored by Westermeyer Industries, the leaders in oil management and presser vessels for the commercial refrigeration industry. Whether you're involved with designing a system or tasked with servicing one, Westermeyer Industries has been helping meet the needs of customers like you for the past 20 years. They offer a broad catalog of stock system components with an in-house team of engineers to assist with custom solutions as well. From oil separators and heat exchangers to system monitoring devices, Westermeyer Industries are a total system specialist with industry expertise, engineering know-how, and the manufacturing muscle to help you tackle problems and deliver solutions. That's chapter one. Would you like to have chapter two? You better, son of a bitch, I know the way. Here's adventure. Here's romance. Here's the famous Robin Hood of the Old West. He's cold. He's sheriff. He's getting closer. This way, Pancho Bavano. The Cisco Kid. Good evening and welcome to Advanced Refrigeration Podcast. You're here with your hosts, Brett Wetzel and Kevin Compass. What's going on? Oh, well, uh, since we recorded last, I was, I think it was like Wednesday or no, it was Tuesday. I have, I'm in my uh, fourth state now <laughs> of, of the week and it is, it is Thursday currently. So I am, yes, in my fourth state. Just basically driving all over the place and uh, just did some rooftop programming today. And uh, hopefully in the morning, just got to show the customer what's up, what's uh, how it works. And I am out of here and hopefully headed home. But you? I'm still in San Antonio. I had another day of RDM training. I am doing some training tomorrow with some of the guys. Um, I don't know what else I'm doing. Um no, that's about it. That's about it. Um, by the way, we finally hit 2,300 downloads, so congratulations to us. But today we're going to be talking about uh, actual oil uh, oil troubleshooting. Uh, the last podcast we did intro to oil, basically explaining the low-pressure <coughs> system, high-pressure system. And tonight we're going to get into diagnostic because, as most of you guys know, Diagnostic of oil systems is usually the highest rate of callbacks on most uh, refrigeration contractors. Yeah, which I'll agree. I mean, it's it's oil, oil diagnostics is probably one of the harder parts about this job. I mean, it, it 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 takes the longest to learn. It seems like, but me and Brett are going to go over some you know things we follow just about every time and try to do with every every oil failure call to try to 
the gate, getting the callbacks and being more thorough and actually figuring out the real problem that's not adding oil. All right, you want me to start by explaining some of the uh, the older oil fill controls? <laughs> yeah, sure, take it. You got you got a little bit more time on me. <laughs> so, um, usually on the coping compressors, we have uh, the Centronic. Uh, now it's up to the Centronic three. Uh, what's nice about the Centronic three versus the Centronic one and two? Uh, basically, have um, an input for the voltage that it, it doesn't really matter. You can hook it up uh, 120 or 240 and it'll still uh, still function. There's no separate terminal for the for the separate voltage. Typically, everyone thinks that the oil sensing switch is a transducer because the plug in the back does in fact look like it, it, it looks like a transducer. But if you actually unplug it and look at it, there's actually only two wires that are connected to the oil fail device. That is just an oil differential switch. So it's either open or shut. Typically, the way it works is the on a coping compressor, you try to maintain more than, I believe the cutout is 9, nine PSI differential between the crankcase and the oil pressure. If it's less than, less than that, what will happen is uh, after 120 seconds, the oil fill control will actually open up the control circuit and get off the compressor. You have some other uh, you have some other oil fill controls. You have the Johnson control, either a 345 or which is the older older version. And you also have the 545, the newest version that they have. There's three lights on that one. Um, you have a red light, which means failure. Um, you have a yellow light and a green light. The yellow light can mean one of two things. If the yellow light is on by itself that means that it is timing for an anti-short cycle delay. If you take off the four screws off the front of the oil fill control and you look inside, the jumpers in there. Uh, jumpers can be set for zero to 30 to 60. So I believe it's either 100 or 120. And that's actually the short cycle delay. So when the compressor contacts uh, want to pull in, you know, let's just say the RO turns on to start the circuit, there's a delay in that oil fill control where it's actually not going to come on right away. And you'll see the, uh, the yellow light just start to blink by itself. Now you have to be mindful when you're actually setting one of these up. If you're on a single system, no harm, no foul. You can delay it as much as you want to have an, essentially an anti-short cycle delay to make sure that we, you know, we don't short cycle our compressor. But if you are dealing with a rack and you are setting this up, it's highly recommended that you actually put the delay down to zero, zero uh, seconds. The reason for this is uh, a lot of systems have a proof failure. And if the proof failure is set for 30 seconds in the EMS and the energy management system where the compressor doesn't come on within 30 seconds, the system will fail. And basically it will stop trying to bring on that compressor. So if you have the delay set for 30 seconds or 60 seconds, basically it's not going to turn on right away. The EMS is going to fault out and then turn off the RO for that, for that particular compressor and not even bring it on. So it's highly recommended to not even utilize that delay and just put it to zero seconds. So with the delay, if, if you do have a system uh, that has a delay, you'll, you'll have the yellow light stay on. Uh, it'll start blinking um, for however long the delay is. And then what will happen is the green light will kick on. Uh, as soon as the compressor starts making oil um, oil pressure. If you see on that particular control, if you see the oil, if you see the green light stay on and the yellow light actually start to blink, 
that's telling you that you're below your oil set point, whatever, whatever the differential is. So let's just say on a Carlisle, it might be set for six, P, uh, six PSI. So if you're less than six PSI on a Carlisle compressor, what will end up happening is the yellow light will start blinking while the green light is on. And then after 120 seconds, it'll fault out, shut off both yellow and green lights, and then basically just kick on the red, open up the control circuit, and now you have no compressor running. Those are some of the controls that we use. There are the, there's also a, another one made by CureWan. Um, it's called a Delta P2 gauge. That particular one um, is predominantly used by Bitzer, but they do make um, different ends for the actual fitting that actually goes in the compressor. Same thing with the Johnson Control. They actually have different different fittings where like a uh, Copeland one is a, a lot longer than what, what a uh, Carlisle one is. Um, a Bitzer one is a lot shorter, but it also has, if it's going on a Bitzer, chances are it's probably uh, metric threads. And like I said, those are just switches, differential switches. So, you know, that really kind of dictates, you know, basically when the oil pressure, oil pressure switch is going to open or close and actually fault out the system. So you can have the same control as you would use for a Copeland or a 545, but, you know, the only thing you really have to change is the actual fitting that actually goes in the compressor. The Delta P gauge um, works uh, exactly the same way. Some have a resetting, uh, resetting button on the, on the back end, and then there's other ones that do not have a resetting button, and if the system were to fail, then basically you'd have to drop the control power to actually reset them. It's similar to like the compressor control module that's in the Peckerhead compressor. That overheats, if the windings overheat and that, that particular item opens up, you know, it will potentially uh, fault out and then reset that, you have to drop the control power and turn it back on. There's also one other type that Kirawan makes. It's, I believe it's an Opto 22. And that one is for Bitzer compressor that does not actually have an oil. That's the one that has, we talked about yesterday, or sorry, last the podcast, we talked about the different styles of compressors, um, whether it be one that has an oil pump or a sling style. Well, the Opto 22 actually goes like directly in the center where the crank is. And what it's doing, it's actually an optic eye, and it's looking for oil. There's no oil pressure there. It's basically seeing if there's oil in, you know, getting getting thrown around that compressor. And that works the same. It will turn, uh, it will turn red, uh, blink red when it's failed. And in order to reset that, you'd have to drop the control power, which will turn that thing back on. Anything you want to add to that, Kevin? Yeah, two, so for those optical eyes, two things. They will trip on oil if the compressor is overfilled. If it doesn't see the splashing and it's overfilled, it will also trip on oil. And second, or actually three things. The second thing is if the oil is foamy, even if it's not from floodback, if it's foamy, like it's foaming coming into the float, it will also cause that eye to fail out prematurely, even though there's oil in the compressor. And with floodback, it'll also do it. There was a certain day code of those, too. I don't remember exactly the day code. I, I just know it was like uh, from a couple of years ago. There's a certain day code range of those those controls that were actually faulty. 
they were timing out to like 10 seconds. Um, so that's one thing to look out for when you're looking through those for those 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 I ones. I am not a fan of those. To be honest, I'd rather just have an OMB. So since so yeah. since we're talking about foaming compressors, uh, I don't know how many times I've seen on on supermarket tech talk where you know people are seeing foam inside, you know, inside the sight glass and the oil. Can you explain why that happens? What you know what what that actually is from? So that could be from a few things. Obviously, it could be from flood back, like everybody thinks, from uh, you know the refrigerant boiling off there, or it could be just from when the compressor starts. It's lowering the pressure in the crankcase, so any vapor that or anything inside of the uh, oil, any refrigerant in there, is now boiling off, which causes a little bit of foam, even though it's not flood back, but it's causing the refrigerant to boil off inside of the oil, or two it is oil actually uh, coming inside through the float. It's metering in. It could be uh, low flow on the oil. It could be uh, oil with condensed refrigerant in it. It could be uh, just oil coming across the port that's barely open on the uh, oil float. That, that, th those are all the reasons it could start foaming. So since you were talking about uh, oil, or I'm sorry, refrigerant actually condensing uh, in the oil line, I want to kind of elaborate that on that because I've had, you know, a lot of experience with this, uh, mul you know, multiple different ways. So Tyler, for a little bit, for some odd reason, you know, we talked about the different types of oil separators, right? And we said that typically, you know, if you have a what's called a turbo shed, which is basically a helical separator or a filtered uh, coalescing filtered separator with no oil float on the bottom is, you know, we, we consider that a high pressure system, right? Well, instead of... Uh, Instead of the oil leaving that separator and going right through an uh, oil filter, oil regulating valve, and back out to the compressors, Eiler, for some odd reason, was putting a oil reservoir at the, um, you know, at the rack as well. I don't know why, because um, basically, like we said before, a turbo shed is basically its own, its own uh, reservoir. Um, what happened was I was up in Connecticut. And this rack was right next to um, uh, these autom uh, automated dampers that were supposed to be closing. They weren't closing all the way and was making the machine room come down to about, I don't know, probably 40 degrees. Well, what happened was the uh, because the separator is hot, okay, you might be running, let's just say, 75 degrees saturated in the wintertime, right? As far as your saturated condensing temperature, which means anything over 75 degrees, it's you're going to be technically vapor, right? So, you know, normally the oil separator, 120, 130, 140 degrees. So you're well off superheated, so you're not going to have any liquid form. Well, this oil reservoir, because it's piped uh, off of the off the actual turbo shed, off the actual separator, uh, this refrigerant was just sitting there getting cold. So our pre the pressure in the reservoir, because uh, in this particular system, there was no OCV on the top to drop the pressure down. So basically the reservoir was getting down to 40 degrees but we're still at 75 degrees saturated so that would make it about 35 degrees of subcooled liquid so any vapor that was in there would actually drop below the oil because the liquid refrigerant is actually heavier than the oil it's almost like oil and water and then instead of the compressors getting oil when they called for they were getting straight up liquid refrigerant um if you check out the uh, refrigeration group um advanced refrigeration podcast uh, i have a picture up right now where you can see 
the oil regulating valve, the 1236, actually looking like an expansion valve. And this was all because the motor room was getting too damn cold, condensing the actual refrigerant in there and then sending that refrigerant, the liquid refrigerant into the compressors and then causing oil failures because they weren't actually getting oil. They were getting liquid the whole time. Yeah, we have that problem a lot. Husband uh, did that with like probably 30 or 40 rack in a box racks up here. High pressure oil system with a external reservoir. Actually, it looks more like a receiver and it does the same thing all, all winter long up here. Rack in a box on the roof exposed to the ambient. Yeah, we, we cut we cut the last one out. I don't understand why you know, the turbo shed, like, like we said, is basically its own oil reservoir. So as long as the compressors are filled up with oil, and as long as the turbo shed has, has a good level, I don't understand why you would need that excessive, you know, excessive amount of oil. You know, so I was told every one of these has the K5 larger scrolls. So I was told it was because they were, there was such a demand on those scrolls and they could basically wipe out a turbo shed. With one really? fill. Yeah. yeah. If a turbo shed sitting at one ball, if a K5 was empty and goes to full fill, it'll wipe it out with one fill. Hmm. We just if you use if you use like a ZF eighteen or something like that or a ZB eighteen, that's a small compressor. Yeah. I mean, especially when you get the smaller separator sizes. I mean, some of those smaller turbo sheds don't hold very much oil. Maybe like a gallon, and you're up at the second ball. I got you. So that, I, that's why I was told they did it. But I mean, that's a horrible idea. If you're going to do that, you need to heat tape it and insulate it. And basically put it on a thermostat. You don't want that thing rolling the whole time during during the summertime. It's a waste of energy, and there's no re- you know reason to have it. You can have it there, you know. Well, let me tell you a quick story about that. Go ahead. We were doing a start. We were doing a startup, and uh, that was. Uh, it was a rush job. It was a Thursday into Friday. And then uh, there was a main liquor line cylinder on this rack and uh, nothing was programmed to it. So it was overridden. Something happened. The override got taken out. Rack went down, pumped down over the weekend. Receiver was too small to hold the charge. So it just kind of went till it, you know, high headed a little bit and pumped down. Well, lo and behold, I mean, we, we did a quick start up here, didn't check everything. And uh, one of the things I always check and I'm, you know, pretty diligent about it is the receiver heater. Hmm. Well, somebody at Hill Phoenix, when they uh, installed this or put this, the thermostat in here, they had band heaters on there had it set for uh, 160 degrees. Nice. And it was 95 degrees outside. <laughs> so this full receiver sat at, you know, hundred percent with the liquid line shut off on one side, the condenser full of gas on the other side and uh, sat there baking their refrigerant until it blew the reliefs off. So it, until the whole rack was flat. Amazing. Yeah. So that's one thing you may want to check uh, when you're doing stuff is uh, you, you shouldn't leave heat tape on a vessel with, without a thermostat and actually checking it. <laughs> All right, back to go ahead. Back to oil nope. failures. Um, some of the things you have, uh, you know, let's talk about low pressure systems for a bit. Um, we explained before that basically you have to have you know two pressure drops in order to have flow, right? 
you know, your discharge yep. pressure that goes uh, to your oil reservoir, which is typically going to be anywhere from 5, 10, 20 to 30 pounds heavier than what your uh, highest suction is. You know, there's your intermediate pressure, and then your crankcase is basically the lowest pressure where that, that flow is going to end up going in that compressor. You want to go over some of the issues that can happen? Yeah, so let's start with the low-pressure oil system. So first things first, when I'm when I'm looking at a low-pressure oil system, you know, I'm going to look at the reservoir and see if there's any oil in there. If there's no oil in there, then I'm going to, you know, venture over to the oil separator. And I'm going to feel the feed line feeding out of the oil separator. First things first, your hands, you know, before you get any tools out. Feel that feed line. Is it is it cold? Is it hot? Is it, like, boiling hot? Is it warm? Is there, is there an oil side glass? Can you even see any oil side glass? You see oil flowing through there. You want, you want to check those things first. Just do a quick visual. And if you see no oil in there and the feed line's cold, then I start, you know, digging into deeper. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to check my reservoir pressure. Because if your reservoir pressure is high, say it's uh, 150 pounds, or let's say 250 pounds, and your rack's running just about that, you're not going to flow any oil out of the separator in order to to feed oil, into the, your pressure on the reservoir to feed oil into the, from the separator into the reservoir. So you got to check that OCV valve. If that OCV valve is a 10, a 20, a 15, a 30, whatever it is on there, that should be, you know, 30 pounds above. If it's a 30, your whatever suction group it's tied to. So if it's not, say your suction group is maintaining 50 pounds and your oil reservoir is 125 pounds, well, that's a problem. You know, you're, 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 you're not where you're supposed to be. So you need to verify that first. Once you verify that it isn't suction pressure, it's completely pumped pumped out then you need to watch the separator for a little bit i'll strap a temp probe to it i like to throw an ems temp probe on there and set the logging up to like 30 seconds and just make a sensor control so i can watch watch it you know if it if it is an issue i can just graph it out on the controller to see if it is feeding or not so i'll just watch it maybe like 30 minutes see how many times it cycles it should cycle Anywhere from like five to seven times an hour is usually what I see them do, depending on how much oil you're moving and how much you're separating. So if it's not cycling at all in that time, it's, you probably got a stuck float. It, it's, I would at that point probably drop the float and you'll pump the rack down, drop the float. Brett's going to go over on how to clear the float, you know, to get you out of a, pit, a pinch. I mean, I see guys beating on them and kicking them. I mean, that hardly ever works. I mean, you're, you're probably just going to end up causing some more damage than anything. But Brett's going to go over a way on how you get some free. But, like, you, you need to eventually pull that float down and clean it. It's probably dirty. I've seen a few that are crushed. I've seen a few that have holes in them that, you know, they have oil in them. So I always make sure after I clean them. I backflow brake cleaner from the three eighths line through and then through the, where the needle is, I'll, I'll flow brake cleaner through there make sure I got full flow brake cleaner. And then I'll take the ball and hold it in my hand 
and I'll shake it back and forth to make sure I don't hear anything in the ball. If you hear something inside the ball sloshing around, you got oil inside there, and it's not going to pick it up. Correct. The the float the float is compromised at that point. Yeah. The, now, the other thing ahead. I've seen, uh, someone actually posted a picture on Supermarket Refrigeration Tech Talk. There was a ball that looked like it was crushed. Now, typically, what happens is when when you see that, if you pull the, if you end up dropping the float, and you see that ball actually being crushed, typically you should have a. Um, a discharge check valve on the outlet of your separator. Okay. This is uh, for when the rack actually shuts down um, to make sure that liquid refrigerant doesn't come back in your discharge. If the, if that check valve were to fail or if there's not one there, basically liquid refrigerant can basically migrate upon a failure. And then what will happen is when you start that rack back up, if you do in fact have a fail, uh, have uh, that separator full of liquid, it, the liquid's going to expand quite rapidly and potentially crush that 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 ball. I've also heard of um, one particular store where I'm pretty sure that the separator had uh, actually shelled, actually blew apart, and someone ended up getting injured uh, because of this. Racked for a little bit, rack started back up, separator blew apart, and. You know, you have to be very careful when you're when you're starting something up back after a failure. Um, do you want me to go over how to backflow it if you, if it's not? Yeah, you you want to hit sure. the backflow thing. So, if you have to backflow it, you know that that's it's probably definitely it has junk in it. Um, you know, definitely probably dirty. You know, you should probably make plans on changing it anyway. This is just get, to get you out of a pinch. Typically, you know, technicians try to put another um, an oil service valve right next. There's usually a, a square plug that's in the bottom of the separator plate um, right underneath the float. And that way you have something there to try to drain out that oil. Because if, if you assume that that, that separator is filled up with oil, you know, uh, you want a way to drain it out. Um, unfortunately, sometimes they're not always there. This is a way to actually back blow the separator to get you out of a jam until you can get someone there with a new uh, a new float assembly. All right. You might need to write this down. There's a couple directions that you need to follow. First thing that you're going to do is close off the oil outlet on your reservoir. The reason why we do this is because we are going to pressurize the reservoir and we want to make sure, like we stated before, a lot of these oil, the oil floats, uh, they don't like greater than 90 pound differential. So if you do in fact have greater than 90 pounds, you're going to damage the float and cause even more pain and suffering than what you're already going through right now with the rack being down. Next, you're going to do a follow where the OCV is connected on the header. You're going to close that line off. All right. Hopefully you got at least one compressor you can start running. I would like we want you to hook up a discharge line from the discharge of, of one of the compressors that you have running and run that into the reservoir, okay? Turn off your condenser fan motors. I wanna get the pressure in there as high as humanly possible, okay? Let's just say your, your head pressure shuts off at 325, try to get like 300 PSI worth of pressure from the discharge, from your gauge manifold set into that, into that reservoir. So now we're gonna, after we closed off the OCV, now, basically, it's closed off on the outlet. 
it's closed off on the OCV. So the only line that should be open or even cracked is the top. So you can actually pressurize that reservoir with discharge pressure. We're gonna get that thing up to about 300 pounds. We wanna make sure that when you shut off the gauge set that it stays at 300 pounds. Once we get it up to 300 pounds, then what we're gonna do is gonna run over and turn on the condenser fan motor. Cause right now you have 300 pounds in the reservoir, you have 300 pounds in the separator, right? When you drop the head pressure by turning on your condenser fan motors, the pressure in the separator is going to drop, but the pressure in the reservoir isn't going to go anywhere. It's going to stay right there. The idea is once you get your, once you turn on the condenser fan motors, that 300 pounds that's now in the reservoir is now greater than the pressure that's going to be in the separator as the pressure comes down. So the idea is, is going to, that 300 pounds is going to help push whatever junk is left in the three eighths line going into the actual uh, reservoir, excuse me, reservoir, and actually punch a hole through whatever junk is in the bottom of that float. It might not work the very first time. Do it a second time. If you see a lot of, you'll see, if there is a sight glass on the system, when it starts flowing in the opposite direction, like once the pressure's actualizing, you'll see that one, you'll see the uh, reservoir start filling up with oil but you'll also see a whole bunch of dirt come out of the, come out of the actual oil separator. Like I said, this isn't just to, you know, do this and leave the rack running. You know that there's, there's junk in the bottom of that separator. Okay. This isn't a permanent fix. This is just to get you out of the woods. So when you do have to drop that oil float at the bottom of the separator, you don't get covered in eight gallons worth of oil. That's all this is for just to get you rolling, to get the oil out of the separator so then you can have someone bring you a float so you can, you know, so you can babysit the rack until someone can get you a float and then shut it down and then actually change out the float and do a proper fix on it. And at that point, you're probably gonna have to change your filters as well. Then once you're all done with that, you get oil back in your reservoir, you got oil back in your compressors. Uh, you would have opened up your OCV to relieve off the, any remaining pressure that would be in there. And lastly, you're going to open up the oil line going out to your compressors then that way you're not overpressurizing the compressors and filling it up with, you know, super high, high discharge pressure. That's why we want to open up the, uh, the OCV first before we open up the line out. And that is a way to actually, you know, get you out of a pin, uh, get you out of a jam in case your uh, oil separator float is not opening up all the way. Then when it's filled up with garbage, Yep. That's a that's a good way to do it. Or you could be like everybody else and beat it with a hammer. <laughs> that's just that does that does not work. Just so we're throwing it out there. That, that's just pure <laughs> luck. <laughs> I've seen so many guys do that. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a good way to do it. I mean, I tend to always, if I don't have a float, I at least have a gasket on my truck, so I could at least drop the float and at least clean it generally you could get it clean i mean it's pretty rare for the ball to fail but it does happen so when you're taking the bolts out of these flanges so obviously leave two bolts in there and then get all the back bolts out first and then what i like to do is loosen the two side bolts and then pinch the back back of it so like the the very front of it opens up a little bit the oil will start flowing out for, forward. I do not like to use a pan to catch it 
I use what's called a pig uh, pig funnel or like a formal funnel. You, it's basically a lead funnel covered in rubber. You can basically like mold it to whatever shape you need. I mold it underneath there, and you'll generally catch all the oil into like a bucket or something. So that that's how I like to do it to make sure you don't get a, you know, you don't take the last two bolts out and get an oil bath. And then, as you drop down the separator, if it's a, so, it depends on what kind of separator you have. If you have an impingement type separator, there's a couple things you need to look out for. You need to look at the float, obviously, but you also need to look inside the separator and there's a screen around that protects the float. Okay, that gets plugged up with dirt and debris too. So you need to pull that screen down. It should be like a, a circular screen around where the float sits in. <laughs> then you need to look up inside of there with a mirror or a camera or your head and there is a cone-shaped screen inside this thing. That is what actually separates. It's on the discharge line. It comes for the compressors. That is what actually separates the oil. So the oil and discharge gas come through the screen, okay, and it causes it to aerate. Gas goes up. Liquid oil comes down. Oil's heavier than the gas, so it falls down, and it collects by the float until it has enough down there and it raises the float up and then it goes out into the reservoir. It is crucial that that screen not be torn. You lose a compressor, you bust up some valve plates, broken material, trash, anything that goes to that compressor ends up in that screen. So if you get a broken compressor and you can't find the valve plates, like if the discharge reads are gone or the discus pack is gone, guess what? If it's not stuck in the, uh, the muffler or the, uh, the baffle plate and the compressor, it's in the screen of the separator. And it's probably torn right through it. So you need to look up in there and make sure your screen's not torn. I've heard of guys being able to change those screens. Me personally, I could never get my arm in there. So I don't know, Brett, no, you have to Absolutely not. So it's it's got like a hose clamp on there, but like I'm not getting my arm up in there. That thing's smoking hot. Not to mention, I can't fit up in there. I'm not a contortionist, Um, so there's no way I'm getting my ass up there. Yeah. Uh, The fire department having to, you know, cut cut a oil separator (laughs) off because my arm's stuck. Um, I'm going to give you guys a trick on how to get this back going, especially, like, in the middle of the night or an emergency or, like, so you get another separator going. But go to the manager's office. Go get a stapler. And if the screen is torn, you staple the living shit out of it. Like a bunch of staples. And that sucker will run for a while. <laughs> Matter of fact, I know one that I stapled like two years ago that's still running. They refuse <laughs> to change the separator on. I've never done. <laughs> so that'll that'll get you back going in a pinch. Is stapling it stapling. I don't think I've ever come across it. actually one that's been ripped. Never. Yeah. Really? No. I see it all the time. Most of, I don't know, most of the separators are, are you know, that I've dealt with, are, you know, is either uh, uh, helical or uh, or some kind of coalescent. So it just sheer luck that I guess that I haven't seen my fair share of impingement screen. Uh, yeah, we got a lot of older stores over here with uh, the chain store. Like, they have a lot of older racks, like the 
90s um, that have a lot of impingement style screens. Matter of fact, I just stapled one back together like three weeks ago. You know, ago. you make me feel really old when you say, oh, those are old, they're from the 90s. Horrible. <laughs> well, <laughs> what do you want me to say? <laughs> it's really old. All right, so that, that's one way to get uh, to get an impingement-style screen separator back going. Other than that, you got to change it out, and don't put an impingement-style back in. Impingement-style separators are only like 75% efficient of catching oil. You're much better off with a, with a filter type or a centrifugal, like, or heel coil, as Brett was calling them. You're much better off with that type of separator. It's going to be much more efficient, and it's going to protect you from tearing that sock. You won't have to worry about that again. So once once you have proof, like so if you drop that float and there's no oil in there and the sock's not torn, you have a, a you, you have another issue, not so much either low on oil or your oil sitting in the system. If you go to pull that separator down, Henry and ACR, they all list the amount of oil that's supposed to be in there. But if you pull that, that, that plate down and there's not any oil in there, but barely like a maybe an inch, you, you have an issue in the system. Like you have a system issue. Or the oil's all over the ground, which I would hope you would see that. Um, you have a system issue. But if you pull that thing and it's full of oil, like a gallon, two gallons, you got a float issue. So that's one thing to look out for. Now, after you get everything put back together, you put like maybe, uh, they, they list the ounce in there. I usually put like a quarter gallon in there, half gallon. I want to charge it up enough where the ball is going to lift up. So I want to be able to see that oil when I turn everything back on, shoot out of that separator and into the reservoir. So I want to be able to prove that the float is working. So I don't have to sit there and wait for it to work. I want to be able to prove I want to see it, you know, fill up the reservoir. So then, you know, your oil float is good to the reservoir. Then you want to check your res your reservoir pressure. Again, suction pressure. You should be at what your OCV is. Now, to test the OCV on the oil reservoir, this is how I do it. I shut off the outlet going to the floats. It's very important. Or else you'll mess the floats up. You're going to... Sh you're going to shut off the line feeding the oil separator from the oil separator to the reservoir, and you're going to take discharge gas and fill up the reservoir with it. And it should vent out to whatever it is above suction pressure. If it's 30 or 20 pounds, it should be 30 pounds above suction pressure. And it should hold pretty steady. I mean, if it bleeds down right away within like a minute, then the OCV is bleeding through. If it, if it stays longer, like 10, 12 minutes, like it, it, it's good. It should be above whatever it is. Yeah, and if, the, if you pressurize it with discharge gas, like you stated before, and it stays up to wherever the discharge gas is with the OCV, you know, still open to the, to the suction, um, you have, you know, basically that's, that OCV is failing to open up and relieve that pressure. Like you said, it should just be, you know, if you have a 20 pound suction and you have an OCV 30 in there, your expected pressure in your reservoir should be 50 pounds. If it's not with the, the steps that he took, 
you know, o OCV is probably bad. Next thing after you prove that the, so now we have, we know we have oil coming out of the float. We know that the OCV is regulating the pressure into the reservoir properly. The next thing you probably want to check is to make sure that our filter isn't restricted. The filter is usually put on the um, outlet of the reservoir. You're not really going to be able to see any kind of temperature drop because, you know, you're basically, you know, it's going to be discharge, discharge, temperature, discharge, temperature, or whatever the temperature is. It's basically really not, you know, there's no refrigerant to make a, make a uh, temperature drop, but you will definitely see a, a pressure drop. We've, what do you say? Five, uh, three pounds, three, five pounds of a differential and time to change it. Well, I mean, unless the floats are calling, you're not going to see a drop. So, so th this is the way I look at it. Like, I hardly ever see a drop through them, even when they're plugged, unless they're really plugged and all the floats are calling. When in doubt, change it out. So, we talked about the... Uh, helical, uh, helical separator of the turbo shed, what we refer to as basically that's a um, separator that does not have a float at the bottom. There's usually, uh, usually always sight glasses on the side. Sometimes on the older low temp racks, they're really, really dirty and it's kind of hard to see where exactly the oil level is. But you'll either have um, a helical style um, turbo shed or you might have one that has a coalescing filter in there. Helical separators, like we had stated on the last podcast, are CFM rated. If you are less than half of what the total uh, CFM rating is, the capacity starts to dramatically drop, and it will not separate that oil. You know, basically, that refrigerant and oil, when it's piped uh, piped into that uh, helical separator, is spinning around at a certain rate. It's almost like a center, uh, like a blood centrifuge, right? It separates separates the um, the blood cells in there, but same same principle, and it separates the refrigerant from the oil. Oil's heavy, drops down to the bottom, fills up the you know the reservoir section of the actual separator, and basically goes out from there through into an oil filter, and then would basically either uh, go to a high pressure style oil level control, like an OMB control, or if it goes into a conventional oil float, you'd have to drop down that pressure. There's two different types of valves um, that you'll see that are made by Sporlin. One is a Y1236. Can't really explain what kind of way it, it, it looks like, you know what, it looks like an uh, expansion valve um, flared on the, on both sides. The only difference is on the top, it looks like a, uh, it's almost like a EPR adjustment stem. The only thing that, uh, uh, I'm sorry, EPR adjustment dome. The only difference is on the top, uh, there's a quarter inch line that goes to wherever suction that you're connected to. And that valve is set from is it five, 25 PSI differential, 25 being the max. Is that correct? All right. And then yeah. you, uh, yeah, it is. from there, you would go to your uh, oil level controls, your oil pots. So it knocks down the pressure. Remember, we don't want any more than a 90-pound differential on 99% of the oil floats. 
And there's also another style valve that is made by Sporlin, but it was specifically made for Hussman. Um, once again, this looks exactly like the expansion valve. The only difference is this has a flat power head and basically the capillary tube that's connected to the top of that power head is then piped and welded in to the front, I'm sorry, to, towards the outlet of the valve. And that uses, that is helped to utilize to adjust that oil pressure to get you your five to 25 pounds heavier than the suction that it's attached to. Anything you want to add? Oh yeah, one thing, the Sporlin Y123 valve does have a screen in it. So it has a flared TXV style screen. So that's one thing to take, take into consideration. If it's not feeding, you need to check the screen. The Husband valve does not have a screen. So if you do get debris in there, you need to make sure that, you know, you take it apart and clean it. So next I want to go like real quick over oil filters. So couple different kinds of oil filters. Uh, you have a Sporlin OF303. You have OF303B. I do not like to use bypass oil filters on anything. I would rather the filter plug up and the rack go down than the bypass go and then nobody knows the bypass is going. So I generally like to know the filters plug. So I, I don't like to install bypass oil filters. So I like to use like the OF303s, not the B style, the bypass. And then you also have the SF283, which would be the, uh, uh, it would be a suction filter, a Sporlin suction filter. You see this used a lot on Husman equipment, older equipment. Protocol. They had oil filters. Husman's, yeah, protocols. Husband still sends racks out today with them. So if you see an SF283 filter, don't freak out and think you can't use it for oil because you can. I mean, they tend to plug up a little uh, faster, but they usually are a little cheaper. I mean, if I get a real dirty system and I'm going to be, you know, in the process of cleaning it up, I'm going to use SF283s because I could change them more. And they, they seem to, you know, plug up a little faster and get them a little more out. And then you have the replaceable cartridge filter, the uh, OFE one. Throw a blank. Yeah, the OFE one. So you have the OFE one, which is the replaceable spoiler cartridge filter. And now Westermeyer actually has a replaceable cartridge filter also that you don't have to take apart like the Sporlin one. The fittings are not on the top. The flanges are all on the top. We put them in on a, a rack, and the flanges are on the top. So you can pull the bolts off without having to take the flares off. So that, that's another option uh, for oil filters. Emerson makes an oil filter, too. We don't really use – I mean, we don't really have anybody that sells Emerson stuff around us. <laughs> around us. So um, that's about it for oil filters. I like to see them change at least, one, at least once a year. I like to see them changed if not more changing oil filters is, you know, better than not changing oil filters. The cleaner you keep the oil, the better everything is. A lot of times when we're doing PMs, 
uh, quite on, there's certain things that I honestly don't even have people check. Uh, liquid cores is a prime example. Uh, uh, oil, oil, oil filters just automatically assume they can change it. If, if the customer only does one here, just change it. If the oil looks dirty and dark, then that means you, at that point you should be doing an oil change. Um, but yeah, on, on a PM, just regardless, just change it. Like, like before. Yeah, I mean, nothing bad comes no, not out of changing all. oil filters. One thing I do have to oh, mention good. about the 283 that you had brought up. Um, I actually just purchased one for a protocol. We were working on a protocol at a, at a gas station. And it's actually a bi-flow valve or a bi-flow bi uh, filter. Yeah, so it matters which way you put it, it in. It does? Yeah. So one one direction will be, it'll say bypass. The other direction will be I was trying bypass. to figure out why they actually use because, I mean, usually on a protocol, you have the, the turbo shed goes to the oil filter. Then, is that why? It's cheaper. Okay. Yeah. It's half the cost. Gotcha. It's just like everything <laughs> on a protocol. It was very weird. It was peculiar. It was kind of amusing. Yes, it was rather funny. It was incredibly funny. I loved it. Hilarious. <laughs> Wonderful.